everyone. My bubblers. We're back. It's been a while. It's been a uh it's been a tumultuous couple of months, and I know many of you have noticed that uh I haven't really done a podcast in a while. Uh and and the pace of writing on the Substack dropped off. Um I'm sorry for that. I I went through uh, some a tumultuous couple of months. Um, it was very rocky. There were some huge ups, like this stuff where it's like feel like you're on top of the world kind of ups, but then followed by some surprising, really bad stuff. And uh, I'm fine. I'm healthy. I'm fine. Uh, it's not not a health issue. Um, but that th- that took me away from the writing and the recording, and uh, and and it's unfortunate. You know, it's said I'm not quite I'm not quite ready to to get into the specifics yet. I think I will at some point, but I'm uh, and it's just not how I expected the last couple of months to play out. Um, it's it's you, I've had enough bad stuff happen in my life that it's taught me gratitude. It's taught me to appreciate the good times when they happen, to be present in the moment and to savor it because I know they don't last. They never do. Not for anyone. I think I've been particularly unlucky in a lot of ways, but I, life is cyclical and everyone goes through shit. And, uh, it's, it's easy to, get sucked into scrolling through Instagram, see your friends put forward their happiest moments and they look like everything is okay. They're smiling, they're buying stuff, they're traveling. It's just like, it's, it's easy. It's easy to compare the way you feel on the inside with the way other people look on the outside. And that's not, being fair to yourself. That's not real life because people put forward their most bullshit fake selves or or most people do. And that's that's not fair to you. Do, comparisons are hurtful. Stop comparing yourself. And I'm I'm saying that to myself as much as to everyone else. But have empathy for others cuz they may be going through some some shit right now they may be in a dark or a low place have empathy for others and be grateful for the good moments when you have them be grateful for when things are going well i i wrote a piece a couple of months ago called i am the duck and uh and and the the metaphor was a duck is on the surface of the pond it's totally it's totally unruffled but underneath it is paddling furiously to stay afloat and i know that feeling and i am sure that many others have that that feeling it's okay to be open about it it's okay to be yourself and to be genuine about it Instead of people judging you for admitting that, 
maybe they'll show you that they are your true friends and they'll be there for you. Maybe they'll show you that, that real empathy when you can be honest about the fact that things aren't always great. Now, maybe that's enough depressing stuff and we should move on and talk about something else. Should we move on and talk about something else? Is that is that too much too much dark real talk? Speaking of dark, uh I watched the first episode so far of the new Jeffrey Dahmer show on Netflix. Now I love all this serial killer stuff. I think uh, I, I, it's, it's interesting that there's like this resurgence of serial killer stuff right now. There aren't really serial killers anymore that, I mean, we've talked about this before, like serial killers can't exist anymore because cameras and DNA, like you get caught. And so instead of being a serial killer, if you're some like incel retard freak, you become a mass shooter. Right, you become the guy who goes into the movie theater or your high school or something, and you shoot like twenty people at once. That's like the new version of serial killer. I think that's part of it. I I have a theory, which is also that if you're, I I I think it's clear that a lot of the serial killers of the past had a sexualized component to the violence they were doing something that was devious or uh, considered bizarre by the majority, something considered abnormal. And so if that's the case, then the ability to let that out and to have an outlet for that in some other way means that you're probably that 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 pressure isn't going to be building in the same way maybe i mean i'm 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 speculating here and so maybe those folks who would have become the next jeffrey dahmer maybe they can watch porn on the internet and then they don't feel they they feel like they have an outlet and they can let it out the show is the show's the show's good so far. It's um it's tense. Uh, one thing that's interesting is, I, I don't think I'm giving away too much, but the police interview his father uh, after he gets arrested. For those who don't know, Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer in Wisconsin uh, in the 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s. He's one of the the greats of uh, of the genre. He was a cannibal. He would. Um, he, he would pick, uh, men up at gay bars and then bring them to his house, his apartment, this shitty little apartment in Milwaukee and drug them and then like eat their hearts and do all kinds of weird stuff with them. And, uh, so, so, so after, after he gets arrested, the police are interviewing his father and his father tells the cops that he had hernia surgery when he was four and he was never the same. Now that's interesting to me 
because a topic that I've, I've had some conversations with some of my listeners recently was about anesthesia and how much anesthesia can fuck you up permanently. And I don't think this topic is talked about enough. I don't think it is researched enough. And I think it's important. I want to have an, an, an anesthesiologist on the show as a guest so we can talk about this. But my, my, my basic theory, my totally untested hypothesis, other than a couple of anecdotal data points that I'll share, is that anesthesia fucks you up. And there are a lot of people whose brains do not recover to 100% or even like 50% of, of regular capacity after they have anesthesia. It usually happens in older people. Something else is going on and it, it seems to really take a toll on their brains. I know it happened to my father. He had surgery about two months before he died to try to remove the cancer that had spread to his colon. He got a he had a, a colostomy where you know they they take out a piece of your colon and they have to put a bag on, but his brain never recovered. I mean he he was basically psychotic for the last call it eight weeks of his life after that surgery. His his brain function just wasn't there. I have a um a very close family friend who same thing had surgery not for cancer. This was for a heart condition, and. Uh, he never recovered. Starting the very next day, he presented with signs of dementia, and it has gotten worse and worse since then. I can't imagine it's a coincidence that he had anesthesia, and the next day he started with signs of dementia. Like that, I I think this topic is not researched enough. It it smells to me like there should be research dollars going into going into this topic. Anyways, the, the the Dahmer thing is good. It's a good show. I think there's there's plenty of other serial killers left to make shows about. Like, I haven't seen a show about Ed Gain. We need more about Ted Bundy. Uh, there, there, there's lots out there. Um, and, and it's all historical, right? Like, you get to do it with this cool 1970s and 1980s sort of dark, gritty vibe to it i feel like things aren't that gritty anymore like nypd blue not about serial killers but it was an incredible show and it portrayed new york as a gritty place new york does not feel gritty anymore it feels fancy it and maybe i'm showing like how privileged i am that i'm like in a fancy part of it but new york feels like it is i don't it's lost that that grit that um what do you call it when like that something something is unique and it's it's a little more homogenized now and chain stores but i guess that's that's everywhere idiosyncratic maybe that's the word we're talking about tv so uh a couple others um there was the oh god this was a, a doozy so i went to a shabbat service in the Hamptons about a month and a half ago. So my synagogue did like Shabbat in the Hamptons at someone's house. It was beautiful. They had a spectacular home. And uh, and there were like 200 people there under a tent for Friday night Shabbat service. Really, really glorious. And before the service started, they had like a little cocktail hour. And I'm chatting with a couple of the other guys there. 
and they were talking about how uh, how great it is during the summer that they commute back and forth. So they spend the weekdays in New York going to the office. Their their wives and kids stay out in the Hamptons all summer, and they commute back and forth. And how great it is to have a few days alone in the middle of the week. And, you know, but but that it gets a little boring because there's only so many times you can jerk off in a week and then you start to get sick of it. And I said, well, there's good shows you can watch. And I said, there's there's this new movie on Amazon about the Thai kids who got stuck in the cave. Do you remember when that happened? Those Thai kids, they they were like the soccer team and then they went into the cave and they went exploring and suddenly there was a big rainstorm and they got stuck there and they were stuck for like two weeks and it was really difficult to get them out. And there's an amazing new movie about it made by, I was going to say L Ron Hubbard, but it's not that it's Ron Howard, the guy who made Apollo 13. Was that the one where they, yeah, I think Apollo 13. Um, so he made this new movie about these kids stuck in the cave and I'm sitting, I'm, I'm standing at this cocktail party with these, other guys at the Shabbat service and they're talking about how, you know, there's only so many times you can jerk off and then you got to go, what's there, what's good to watch. And I said, well, the best thing is you've got this new movie about the Thai kids in the cave. And then you can kill two birds with one stone. Cause you just jerk off constantly while you watch these kids stuck in the cave. And that joke went over like a lead balloon. And both of these guys just sort of nodded. And then they started backing away slowly. I don't think they're ever going to talk to me again, which is fine. Like they're not my best friends, but that makes it even weirder that I just made that totally uh, off color remark with two more or less strangers at a Shabbat service cocktail party at a fancy house in the Hamptons. That was not my, my smoothest, not my smoothest. Yeah. As long as we're on the subject of being weird, I feel like I might as well get all the weirdness out today. I uh, I made another off-color joke. Uh, so I watched this movie. A lot, of, a lot of TV and movies today. I watched a movie called Defiance. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's uh, It's about these rebels in the forest in Belarus during World War II. These were Jewish rebels who escaped and hid in the forest and launched sneak attacks on the German soldiers while living in the forest through all seasons, including brutal winters. They built houses for themselves. They had 1,200 people or something living there. And it was these four brothers who like created this community and lived there. And, and it's, it's quite amazing. I mean, the, the, the true story is quite amazing of what they did. And afterwards, like two, of, I think two of the brothers survived and came to New York and lived in New York for, you know, until the 1990s or something. And Daniel Craig plays one of the brothers and uh, who, who's the, Lee Schreiber plays, the other one, he's like the other star of the show. And the acting is, I mean, first of all, Daniel Craig is like a 
a, a, a Jewish rebel is like not great casting. I don't know how they picked him. Leave Schreiber as a Jewish rebel is also not the greatest casting. Not sure why he got picked either. Holy shit, there's a giant rainstorm starting here right now. I just have to shut the window because it's pouring. So, okay, so these guys, they're living in the woods. There's a bunch of other men, and they're launching these re rebellious attacks. And uh, there were women with them, but the women weren't part of the attacks. It's, it's almost implied that the women were like comfort women. Right? They called them forest wives. A lot of these men had wives. They didn't know what had happened to their wives. They didn't know if they had died or disappeared or gotten to safety. But these men were living in the woods, and they they took what they called forest wives. And these were like other women that they had romantic relationships with in the woods. But, holy shit, I wish you could see this rainstorm. I mean, this is insane. Oh, my God, I'm looking out the window. So, okay, so these, these men are living in the woods with their forest wives. And they had a policy, no pregnancies. Because the they just weren't set up to have a baby living in the woods through the winters. And so I'm watching this movie, this very serious, somber movie about these rebels and their heroism fighting in, in, in during World War II. And all I could think to myself... And maybe this is just because the acting was bad. But all I could think to myself was, okay, what did they do? What kind of sex did they have so that they wouldn't risk a pregnancy? Like, were they doing anal sex in the woods? Were they doing, like, 69s? Like, what what was happening with their forest wives? And and that's not, I mean, that's like watching Schindler's List and then, like, getting aroused by the nudity, right? Like, you, that's not the reaction that you're supposed to have unless you are fucking deviant. So so that was, uh, that was not great. And I, I told that story to someone this week, and it was the same reaction as the Shabbos thing. They looked at me like, what the fuck is wrong with you? But I, I can't be the only one who had who saw that that movie and had that reaction. I can't I can't be the only one who had that reaction. I don't, maybe I am more deviant than others. I remember the first time I saw I, I the first time I saw a pornography magazine. I was um I was in first grade, which that's not an appropriate age for it. But I was in first grade. And there was a kid on the school bus named William Janowitz. And we got off the school bus. And as we were walking to school, we found a hustler in a pile of garbage. And William, he was like a year older than I am. And he he grabbed it and he hid it under his shirt. And we ran to the boys' bathroom together. We knew there was something interesting and devious here. And we ran to the boys' bathroom. Now, a hustler is like, of all the things you're going to start with, I mean, you know, there's 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 really graphic stuff in a hustler magazine. Do they even make porn magazines anymore? But it was it was graphic, and that is not appropriate for a first grader, especially one who was already a little fucked up. Um, I think you know I've talked a lot about about, and I think my 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 most listened to episode was about when uh, when I found the porn magazines in my father's closet. And I would photocopy them, and then I'd I'd paste the photocopies 
on the walls of the shower and just uh, spank it in the shower for for uh, for like 45 minutes straight. And that was weird, you know, with these black and white sort of blurry images. I think from there, it evolved to AOL. You remember AOL when like the internet was AOL and you'd pay per minute and you'd go on AOL and I used it to trade pornographic images with people like you could message them back and forth and I saved all of these images that was how you got porn like it wasn't readily on the internet then that was how you got it it's fascinating to me that that seems to have been the dominant use case of this technology from such an early stage right the same way that in France they had Minitel which was like their own closed loop version of the internet and it was a closed network, but it, it, it really existed for pornography and AOL. I mean, I'm sure there were other things, but like I got to imagine pornography was a big part of it. And maybe that's why we don't have any more serial killers. There was, I mean, before there was AOL, I guess, you know, I, I remember once going to um my friend Justin's house on a play date. And you remember nine, seven Oh Bush. That was the thing they would put the they, were, they looked like business cards and you'd find them all over the street and stuffed into uh, phone booths and they were it was like a phone number I guess you'd call for like a phone sex offering I, I'm not really sure but I I did it it was like five dollars a minute and I would go to playdates at my friend's house in like seventh grade and I'd call nine seven zero Bush from their phones I don't know that I ever got in trouble for it I don't think I ever got got caught doing that. So that was, that was somewhere in there. Uh, I, I wonder if that exists. I gotta, I gotta look a thing that people do. I mean, I guess there's webcams now, right? That's the, that's the modern day equivalent. I've never tried that. I've never, I've never been interested in doing that, but that's, I think the modern day equivalent is like you go on someone's webcam and you pay per minute maybe to watch them or they interact with you. I I guess. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm really not sure. As long as we're talking TV, we'll do uh last, last TV thing I had uh, was New Game of Thrones. Watched the first episode of that. I was never a huge fan of the original Game of Thrones. Like, I watched it. And I enjoyed it. It was fine. Uh, I thought that the quality of the storytelling tapered off a lot as time went on. I think some of that, the reason for that fall off is that the first several seasons were based on books that were well-written by a guy named George R.R. Martin. And he, I assume, had a vision for the characters and the story. And he put pen to paper and he made a plot that was sensible enough and then the hbo people came and they just you know made it into a tv show but it sounds like this guy george martin got sick of writing or or he just got rich and he was like fuck it i don't need to keep doing this and so then hbo had to hire some other guys to write the final couple of seasons and whoever they hired did not do a good job now good writers have, have got to be hard to find right writing well is a difficult thing especially if you need to create characters and a story from scratch. So I'm not assuming that it's an easy thing to do. I mean, I write, 
and I find it to be hard. And I'm writing, you know, short columns, not not long sagas. So I, I would imagine it's very hard to write a good story about this crazy power struggle between wealthy families. Now, that said, if you're going to spend a fortune to create a show, and it's one of the most valuable pieces of intellectual property you own, you should invest in good writers. They do exist. And I started watching the new Game of Thrones series. It is not good. It feels rushed. The first episode had enough plot points that it could have been a full season of a TV show. It could have been 12 or 13 episodes, and it still might have felt rushed. And it feels like the writers were impatient. And I'm a, I'm a believer that patience can make for the best programming. Think about a show like Better Call Saul, and Breaking Bad, right? Breaking Bad was the original. Better Call Saul is the sequel. The writers of those shows take their time. They savor every moment of the storytelling. They don't rush. And that leads to brilliant content. That leads to stories that are incredible and indulgent because they're patient. And I don't know why these HBO people feel the need to rush. Like, presumably, they want you know, several seasons out of this. So what are you rushing for? Why is it so hard to find good TV writers? Like, they've got to have budget for it when it's a tentpole thing that's the the most important IP that you have. But I, look, Disney, it's the same thing, right? Disney owns all these Marvel and Lucas films, And these are important pieces of IP. And yet the writing is horrible. I mean, these these new Star Wars movies for years now are terrible. Why don't they just hire good writers? Why is it so hard to find? I don't get it. I don't. I don't know. Maybe maybe there aren't any. Maybe there's like two in the world, and they're busy with with Breaking Bad or something. Like I just I don't know. But it's interesting to me that this seems to be so uh, so difficult. Um, that's all for now. We'll, uh, we'll be back with more, hopefully recording a lot more frequently and, uh, and, and publishing a lot more. Um, thanks to everyone who, who reached out after the, the Substack piece. Um, remember to, uh, to sign up as a paid subscriber. This does not exist without your support. And now more than ever, that is absolutely vital. So please uh, sign up as a paid subscriber. It's easy to do. It's like 10 bucks a month. I mean, and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, feel free to share this with your friends, and we'll be back with more uh, very soon.